Hello and welcome to the podcast of Tech EU. I am your host, Andrew Degeler, and today we are going to talk about why European startups avoid the topic of downsizing. Then, later in the show, I will hear from Will Benton about the Boeing Accelerator, and I finally will get to ask the question that had bothered me for a while, really. The question is, why are there so few actual aviation startups in accelerators that are launched by airlines and plane manufacturers? This episode is brought to you by Lark. If you are working remotely, you might be tired of having your calls cut short just because you're not paying. Lark is a collaboration suite that provides free video calls for teams with unlimited minutes. On Lark, you can enjoy smooth and reliable calls for up to 100 participants, as well as advanced screen sharing. You can even co-edit documents with teammates from right within the video call window. Get Lark for free at larksuite.com slash techEU. Again, that's L. L-A-R-K-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash T-E-C-H-E-U. Our first topic of the day is startups downsizing, and that's something we have heard a lot about from the US, but not so much in Europe. For this conversation, I am very happy to be joined by Roxanne Warza, the director of Station F in Paris, who used to host this very podcast a few years ago. Hi, Roxanne. Thanks a lot for joining. Hey, great to be here. So before we move on with the conversation, let us take a few minutes to catch up with some of the most important stories of the week with Annie Musgrove. Hi, I'm Annie Musgrove of TechEU, and here are some of the most important news stories in European tech. Spotify has published its numbers for the first quarter of 2020, The Verge reports. The company said that it now has 286 million monthly active users worldwide and 130 million subscribers. Both numbers show an increase of 31% compared to the quarter before. Spotify says that it has met its forecast in the three-month period ending March 31st, but noted that people's daily routines are changing. Quote, morning routines have changed significantly, says Spotify. Every day now looks like the weekend. Paris-based VC Partech has announced a new fund of 100 million US dollars, named Partech Entrepreneur 3, for seed stage investments in post-COVID trends in health, work, commerce, finance, mobility, and computing. The fund's size allows for follow-on minority investments in Series A and Series B rounds, as the firm has done with its previous two funds as well. 40 investments have already been made, including 10 since the start of the pandemic. 15 recent investments have yet to be announced. The London-based mental health care company Compass Pathways closed a funding infusion of 80 million US dollars as part of a Series B investment round. The round included participation from existing investor ATAI Life Sciences, as well as new investors. Funding will go toward expanding its program, testing treatment-resistant depression with psilocybin, a hallucinogenic substance in magic mushrooms. Compass said it's conducting the world's first large-scale psilocybin therapy clinical trial in 20 states across nine countries in Europe and North America. Norwegian video conferencing company Pexip is seeking to raise 200 million US dollars in what could be the largest software IPO in Scandinavia, the Financial Times reports. The startup's technology is used by the US government, Spotify, and PayPal. Pexip has experienced a seven-fold surge in usage in recent weeks as the coronavirus pandemic has forced millions of people to work from home. Pexip is aiming for $300 million in annual recurring revenues by 2025 and an EBITDA margin of 25%. 
Deliveroo is letting go of 367 employees as it struggles with demand during coronavirus lockdown, the Telegraph reports. 50 Deliveroo employees have also been furloughed as part of the decision. In total, about 2,500 people work for Deliveroo, which was founded in 2013. The company couldn't avoid layoffs, even though it's about to get 575 million US dollars in funding from Amazon in a deal that was provisionally approved by the UK's competition watchdog last month. Hungarian competition watchdog GBH has fined online reservation operator Booking.com 7 million euros for unfair business practices, Reuters reports. The GBH said that, quote, Booking.com has led unfair business practices by misleading advertisements claiming free cancellation for some accommodation, as well as by exerting aggressive psychological pressure to facilitate faster bookings. A Booking.com representative said in an email response to Reuters that the company was, quote, disappointed by this decision. Wirecard, the Berlin-based payment provider, has released a statement after KPMG finished an investigation at the company, Reuters reports. The investigation followed allegations of accounting irregularities made by the Financial Times. And, as Wirecard said, they didn't find anything to confirm these allegations. However, KPMG also stated that Wirecard didn't provide sufficient documentation to address all the questions raised. As a result, Wirecard shares crashed 26% after the investigation results were published. KPMG is continuing its analysis for last year once it receives fresh data, which should happen in May. These were some of the most important European tech news stories from the week of April 27th. I'm Annie Musgrove. Now back to Andre. Thank you so much, Annie. Thanks a lot for this uh, recap. Now, Roxanne, you have recently published a post on Medium on why European startups are avoiding the topic of downsizing. It does indeed seem like not many European founders go public with this kind of announcements, uh, with a very, very few exceptions across Europe. But to put the question in context, uh, let's approach it a bit differently first. So why is it actually a problem, do you think, that uh, downsizing has become this sort of a taboo topic in European tech? Yeah, so I think actually... This is actually the question that I had, is whether or not it's taboo. So I noticed that there had been some companies downsizing. I've heard about, you know, quite a few companies in France. I've seen almost nothing about it in the local press. And so after I started discussing with people, it seemed that there was actually a similar feeling in other European countries and ecosystems. Um, so I started wondering, is this actually an active choice made by the company, made by the founders, maybe made by the investors? If that's the case, why? And I actually, like after digging into it a little bit, I realized it's actually quite a bit more complex than simply saying the topic is taboo, even though I think that's uh, there's a bit of that in there. But to get to your point or your question, why is it a problem if we're not transparent and actually talk about it? Well, we actually can't properly assess the impact of the crisis. We can't assess whether the different support mechanisms in place are actually addressing the issues that they're meant to address it really gives us a false sense of reality with regards to our companies and the situation. So, you know, I think it kind of makes everybody feel that our startups are fine, our ecosystem is fine, when in fact that maybe not is is probably not the case. Um, and I also think uh, there's also a bit of the sentiment that the startup ecosystem, um, you know, everything's always great, everything's always perfect. We need to show that actually we can also face troubles and issues and we're not going to just hide behind them. And so I think it's also it's really important for us to show that, especially in our younger European ecosystem. 
Right. So you are in contact with a lot of uh, founders. You are in contact with people from many ecosystems across Europe. So what were your findings on this topic? What do you think are the reasons uh, uh, for the founders not announcing downsizing publicly? Well, so we've just kind of kicked off this discussion. So I've started to get quite a bit of reactions and dig into a little bit. I think there could be a number of different reasons. Um, I think obviously there's a little bit of it's taboo and these are companies potentially that we've been championing in our local ecosystems. And, you know, it's okay to be struggling. We're in a crisis, but I still think that there's a little bit of a sentiment of, are we ready to actually talk about that? There's also, I got a couple of comments about people actually being fearful about how is the press going to deal with this topic, the local press, if they're going to turn it into like a sensationalist story, make the situation look worse than it actually seems. I don't really like that argument. I don't really buy it. Uh, I think we've seen companies handle layoffs where the communication actually comes out excellent. I loved uh, the example of, for, for example, in the US, there was Carta that announced uh, laying off more than 150 people, but actually came out looking really humble and you know really human. And so I think actually we need to help our companies learn how to handle negative topics in the press and also for our press not to take advantage of these situations to kind of slam our entrepreneurs and investors. Um, but actually, I think there's one issue uh, in Europe that maybe we haven't seen elsewhere because the governments have really kind of tried so hard to protect the jobs through the different furlough support schemes. There is potentially a fear of really being shamed with uh, laying off people. And I think this is problematic uh, because the support schemes are not going to last indefinitely. There will come a time where companies will potentially need to let staff go. And it's really important that they don't try to cover this up or feel like they have to cover it up because of the government. But uh, what uh, what kind of feeling are you uh, getting from this uh, conversation? Uh, are we actually having a lot of uh, European startups uh, downsizing or uh, not uh, as many as in the US, for example? No, definitely. We're nowhere near as many in the US because of a lot of the government support schemes. And actually, in the long run, we may see our numbers not look anything like what they are in the U.S. We don't have as many unicorns. And in the U.S., it's a lot of unicorns that we see the, the big numbers with. We don't have as many overvalued unicorns as well. That said, I think that we shouldn't also see the announcements as black and white. It's not like if a U.S. company announces layoffs, it's only going to impact U.S. jobs. We saw that, for example, with Casper, who essentially cut their European team. And on the flip side, I think we saw a European company, for example, Monzo, they announced that, you know, it's going to be their U.S. team. So it's not always so black and white, but definitely we haven't seen those big numbers, although I think we could start to see more and more in the weeks to come. Right. And yeah, to, to the topic of, uh, uh, to the reason, uh, to the excuse, I would even say, uh, of uh, not announcing downsizing because uh, the press would make it uh, negative and sensationalist. I mean, I don't know, I, I can say exactly the opposite. Like, uh, uh, on the other hand, uh, if you as a journalist, if you report uh, something like this, you can also be blamed in being negative and uh, in uh, bashing a company, even though you basically just reporting on the news. That's one. And two, it's sort of a um, spectrum, I would say. If you look at the US, on the one side of the spectrum, you have Carter that you mentioned, uh, uh, who uh, the, the CEO of which really did a good job uh, announcing uh, this kind of news. On the other side of the spectrum, you have Bird, which uh, laid off uh, a few hundred uh, people by a Zoom call, uh, and uh, th that was just handled so poorly that uh, it's probably going to uh, come down in history as the worst example of this kind of thing. So it's uh, it is indeed a pretty big difference. 
Yeah. And I think actually, you know, it's also um, in some ways it kind of also guides CEOs and founders, you know, they can see the different examples, the different reactions, and they can also learn from, from what we're actually seeing in the press. So I also kind of think it's, it's great that the press talks about it and shares some of the details because it's actually great for other people to learn from it. You also had this interesting point in the post that uh, uh, with the uh, uh, legal uh, sort of regulations in some countries, you might not even be allowed to uh, let people go in this uh, kind of crisis period. How does that work? Yeah, so I think it, it hasn't been super, you know, it's not really been, uh, it's illegal to fire people. It hasn't really been said like that. But for example, in France, um, there's legal delays when it comes to letting people go. And these delays were made so that, you know, it really doesn't make much sense uh, to fire anybody. On the flip side, you know, we have the probationary period in the beginning of every European work contract. So you could let those people go a lot easier. But actually firing someone, you'll be able to do it starting now, but you couldn't do it as easily up until now, which really just made it so that people were kind of encouraged to, to furlough their employees rather than let them go. Speaking of which, and it's totally a different topic, but I have heard uh, a couple of times at least uh, from uh, startup founders that uh, these sort of regulations uh, that we have in Europe that you cannot uh, uh, fire uh, someone next immediately or next to immediately are sort of hindering uh, the growth uh, for startups. Uh, do you hear anything like this? And uh, what do you think about it? Just wondering. Well, I mean, I think uh, the situation at the moment uh, is very different from what we see in normal times. And so in normal and kind of a normal economic environment before COVID crisis, obviously, I've heard that argument before. At the same time, I think in the U.S., there's kind of the, the job instability. You can let people go, get them very quickly. In Europe, we actually have the stability also when somebody wants to leave a company. You have that stability because you have a, a certain uh, delay that you have to let Uh, that you have to respect before the person can go. So I think there's, you know, there's both to take into account. And I actually don't think it's as negative as people tend to, to make it sound in Europe. Yeah, and I think right now, actually, people who work for, for startups, they certainly enjoy uh, this uh, kind of regulation because being fired in a time like this effective immediately is something that I can't even imagine, honestly. Yeah, and uh, especially some of the situations you mentioned, the bird situation, I think, uh, you know, given the, the whole context right now, it just seems like you could be in a really shitty situation in other countries. Yeah. And also, I just wanted to ask, do you think that uh, this sort of fear to announce uh, downsizing, is it linked in any way to uh, the perceived uh, lack of a failure culture in Europe? So that's something that I'm not too sure that it's necessarily linked to a fear of failure. But as I mentioned uh, earlier, I do think that it's also potentially because these companies that might be uh, might be downsizing, I think they've kind of really been promoted as the champions and we really don't want to see them fail. Um, and that's from, you know, many levels. I think the investors behind them, I think the gov the local governments. Um, and I think that, you know, just the, the fact is that downsizing doesn't even mean failure, especially in an economic crisis or climate that we're seeing right now. And so I think that um, it's not necessary. It shouldn't be seen as a failure to have to downsize. It should just be as, you know, this is a, a reality of adapting to the current uh, economic situation. Right. And how about uh, yourself? How about Station F? Did you have to downsize at all? No, actually, we are pretty lucky at Station F. Our team is already really small for everything that we're doing. So we don't have any plans uh, in the foreseeable future to downsize. Although I do have a lot of my team on furlough at the moment. So I think that's been a huge advantage to us.
Right. So, uh, Roxanne, this is it for my questions uh, for today. Uh, thank you so much. Thanks a lot for joining and uh, thanks a lot for your insights into the ecosystem. My pleasure. So if you are listening to this and you are a founder of a startup that has had to downsize, do write us an email, do share your experience. I would love to hear from you. And now we can move on to the featured interview of the day, and that's a conversation with Will Benton, an investor, a DJ, and the Venture and Ecosystem Director of the ATI Boeing Accelerator in the UK. This one is coming up after a word from our sponsor. TechEU Podcast is supported by Lark. If you are managing a remote team, you might want to try this next-generation office suite. Lark seamlessly brings together chat, video conferencing, docs, calendar, and so much more. You can enjoy smooth video calls for up to 100 participants with unlimited minutes and advanced screen sharing. Get started for free at larksuite.com slash techEU. Again, that's L-A-R-K-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash T-E-C-H-E-U. Now, let's talk aviation, or at least aviation-related accelerators and what kind of startups they're actually looking for. So, uh, if you go all the way down on the front page of the Accelerator website, what you see is the following. The ATI Boeing Accelerator is brought to you by Boeing, the Aerospace Technology Institute, and JKN, GKN Aerospace, delivered in partnership with Ignite. That's a huge mouthful. Can you, uh, can you just try to uh, explain to me what are all these names and uh, uh, which parties do what in this organization? Yeah, of course. Um, so the Aerospace Technology Institute is a part UK government funded, effectively trade body that represents the interests of the UK civilian aerospace sector. So that's design, manufacture and production and then maintenance of airplanes rather than aviation with people being on a plane right. with an airline, for example. They sit on top of a, I think it's in the ballpark of about 150 million sterling a year of grant funding um, specific to the aerospace industry. Um, which is designed to help uh, established aerospace businesses drive research and innovation forward, um, sometimes partnering with smaller scale um, businesses, uh, mostly SMEs. And they work with the sector to kind of set the digital strategy for what the UK aerospace industry should be doing and kind of sit across that. Boeing is the, the Boeing company, one of the largest manufacturers of airplanes in the world. GKN Aerospace are a UK-based but uh, international, again, aerospace and manufacturing business. And then Ignite is the Ignite Accelerator, which is a UK-based accelerator that's been running uh, seed to Series A stage uh, accelerator programs around the UK since 2011. Right. Okay, this makes it a little bit easier. So which part did what in this, uh, in, in, in this whole setup? Um, the ATI worked with Boeing to kind of set the accelerator program up, um, which is why it's called the ATI Boeing Accelerator. And both Boeing and GKN Aerospace are the corporate sponsors of the program. And then Ignite, which is the company that I'm kind of attached to, is the actual delivery partner for the program. So the program team, um, there's three of us. We, we're we the, the kind of part of the conglomerate that's actually designing and delivering the accelerator program, working day-to-day -day with the startups. Right. And uh, what are the goals of uh, ATI and Boeing and GKN uh, with this program? What do you want to achieve? So the program is designed to kind of 
build and then sustain an ecosystem of early stage startups, creating innovation that's applicable, relevant and of interest to the UK aerospace industry. Um, So as I was saying earlier with the ATI's grant funding projects, this is the earliest stage that I think any of the three ATI, Boeing and GKN have ever worked in terms of working with startups. So um, this is very much a a test to demonstrate that actually there is value in working with very early stage businesses because they are creating cutting edge innovation as it's created or spun out of universities or kind of started up. So it's twofold. It's it's to create this ecosystem by giving early stage startups access to corporates and then on the corporate side, giving the corporates access to kind of bleeding edge innovation as it's being developed. And longer term, it's it, the program is designed to make the UK um, an area of kind of global interest for if you want to start up in, in aerospace or you want to come into the aerospace industry, you come and do this program in the UK as a, as a way to do that. Right. And uh, how did you define the stage that uh, you were looking for? Um, So a part of the program offers proof of concepts, uh, kind of commercial relationships with our two sponsors. And so we knew that we had to have startups that were developed and mature enough to be able to deliver a proof of concept with a company like Boeing and GKN Aerospace. So it couldn't be kind of an idea stage business because it was just too early and wouldn't have the maturity in the team to be able to work with a business as big as someone like Boeing. But we also knew that they had to be early enough to really have that ability to move quickly and and scale with day-to-day feedback from our corporate sponsors. So we're we're mostly focused on kind of late seed stage, early series A companies um, who have a product, who have commercial revenues and and traction, um, either in aerospace or in an adjacent sector. So oil and gas, automotive, manufacturing, pure tech. And then they work with the program team and the the sponsors over the course of the 12-week program to refine the product and the product offering um, and then develop a proof of concept either with both Boeing, GKN or one of the sponsors um, so that by the end of the program, they've got this kind of new commercial relationship with one of these companies. Right. So you've just uh, finished your first cohort of nine startups, right? We have indeed. And uh, all the startups I noticed were from the UK. Is that how you actually wanted it? You, were you only looking for startups based in the UK? So we, we've we've got um, nine companies on the first cohort. Eight are British companies and one is American. Um, so of the British companies, two are Scottish, one is Northern Irish, and the rest are English companies. Because the program is is designed to build this kind of ecosystem or a UK-centric ecosystem, we have a, a kind of a focus on UK companies. But during the, the scouting process for this program, we ended up having applications from, I think, 30 countries around the world. And obviously, to build this ecosystem, you do need that international talent because there's not a huge amount of, of UK-based aerospace startups that are applicable to the kind of thing that we're trying to do. So that there is a core focus on on UK business, but also bringing international talent into the UK and, and building this ecosystem so that they want to stay once the program's finished. So yeah, the US company, it is listed on the website as uh, US and UK, right? Is yeah. that because they uh, established an office uh, uh, in the UK during the program um, or? So no, no, no. Uh, there's there's no uh, location requirement to have a UK business to join the program. So it's open to companies anywhere in the world. Um, we just uh, for the course of the twelve week program, we we ask that a member of the senior management team is able to be in London to make the pro- most of the of the kind of the program relationships and content that we deliver. But Authentize, which is the US business, are based in the US, and then they have a, a UK kind of subsidiary for doing the work that they do in Europe. 
Right. So, I mean, it is obviously hugely naive, but at the same time, when I go to check out uh, these startups uh, in an aerospace accelerator, I expect to see startups that work well in like aviation, space exploration, whatever, that sort of thing. But yeah. only one startup in the first cohort has the word aerospace in its description and everything <laughs> else is uh, like uh, everything from manufacturing to supply and chain management and so on and so forth. How does that work? Do you actually have aviation startups in the UK at all? <laughs> so as I was saying earlier, the, the program is very much focused on aerospace as in designing, building, and then maintaining aeroplanes. So the the focus of the the, fo- the cohort that we just finished is, or was Industry 4.0 and sustainability. Right. So we we've looked or we worked very closely with the the program sponsors to kind of define the areas that they thought um, early stage kind of innovation would be applicable in in terms of improving the efficiency of. Um, their supply chain. So not necessarily going straight in at the top and kind of putting something in a plane to make it more efficient. It's uh, so using one of the program teams as an example, um, Circular are a blockchain supply chain based business that is currently proving a proof of concept in automotive with Daimler and Mercedes-Benz, tracking the carbon dioxide emissions during the supply chain or creation process of electric vehicle batteries. Um, and obviously, that's got nothing to do with planes, but it's a very big problem in any manufacturing stack, whether that's automotive or aerospace, tracking um, things as a uh, an item is made, whether that's a bolt that ends up on an airplane wing or the airplane itself, because that's obviously a, a global supply chain. So the the nine companies that we've got are all building products that are applicable to the aerospace industry, but don't necessarily look like they're straight through aerospace businesses at the moment but i think half of the nine companies were actually outside of aerospace and are using the program to come into aerospace or to test whether aerospace is a viable market for their businesses um so as i said we've got companies that are coming from automotive oil and gas manufacturing pure tech um and are working with the sponsors during the course of the, the program to figure out whether there is a fit for them and if there is what that fit looks like and where that fits within a, a supply chain with a company like boeing or gk and aerospace do you expect this to be this way for next cohorts as well? Um, yeah. So, uh, as I said, we're we're trying to kind of build this ecosystem, and obviously there is a finite number of people in this ecosystem at the moment. So, like bringing in international talent, doing what we can to bring in talent from outside of of aerospace. Um, so we suspect that it will it will continue for future programs very much. So, right. So uh, back to the uh, to the program and the cohort itself. I saw on the website that there was this uh, optional investment of £100,000 uh, structured yep. as a safe note without a cap. How many startups actually got it after the program? All, all nine of them. Right. And uh, yeah, can you just walk me through what was the first uh, uh, first batch like? What was it? Or th- that is, uh, what was the startup experience like in the first batch? What did they do? What did they see? What did they experience? Great question. So it's a 12-week program and obviously split over the course of three months. We generally look at the three months in slightly different ways. So the first month is quite mentoring focused. So using mentoring as a way of expanding the the startup's network as quickly as possible. Um, so second and third days of the program um, after we'd done kind of orientation onboarding was straight into um, kind of rapid fire speed dating with mentors from both sponsors, so Boeing and GK and Aerospace, um, so that we could start building the relationships between the startups and the sponsors 
effectively from day one so that by the end of the program they've got those kind of relationships already established other aerospace specific mentors so ati and um, people from the ati's network investors etc etc so anyone that would be relevant and applicable to the companies at the stage of the companies are month two is very much kind of using the learnings from the, the mentoring month and building on that kind of product optimization, um, refining of sales pitches, all that kind of stuff. Um, and that's very much more curriculum-based, so workshops based on the immediate needs of the cohort. So pre-program, we, we spend a lot of time working with the founders of each business to figure out what they need and what we think they need based on our experience of running programs and then designing workshops to kind of fulfill those those needs. And then month three is very much taking a bit of a step back from program content and focusing on developing the POCs with the sponsors, preparing for the demo day at the end of the program, which we use as kind of a, a jump off point for celebrating the work that's done over the 12 months, but getting everyone back into the real world and using it as a bit of a uh, press activity and focusing on things like investment material, pitching, um, getting one, everyone kind of plugged into our investment network, um, starting the fundraising conversations for post-programs. So a relatively comprehensive 12 right. months. So, and uh, did the startups actually have to come together and work uh, under one roof, or was it uh, mostly like uh, online, remote, whatever it was? It was. It probably won't be for program two. Well, uh, it was a, a physical program. Um, so we we provided office space in central London. It wasn't a requirement that the teams had to relocate to be based in the, the office. But obviously for program content, as I said earlier, we'd, we'd ask that a member of the senior management team would be there on the ground. Uh, obviously, things are a bit different at the moment, but we had the office space kind of available post-program as well so that people could kind of continue developing the relationships that they built over the course of the program. But that that may change for program two. Uh, so we've, as a program team, we've run virtual accelerators before. So we're looking at whether that will be a, a possibility for future programs. Right. And you actually had to move your uh, demo day online as well, right? We did. So we, we had a, I think we had over 200 people sign up for tickets for the uh, physical in-person demo day end of March. We ended up looking at all of our options to try and do it virtually and to try and kind of do it like Entrepreneur First, they did uh, uh, broadcasted their um, end of program demo day. But because of our various stakeholders all over the world, um, we've ended up um, spreading it out over the course of what we call demo month. So we're doing a lot of kind of online PR activity for the teams and right. about the program. Um, and then we're looking at doing a joint kind of demo day for this program and um, program two as and when that's up and running. So there, there will be some sort of physical in-person uh, right. in event. We just don't know when that will be yet. And you said that uh, some of the startups were basically trying to enter the aerospace uh, field and uh, see whether uh, it's a good fit for them. So are there any startups that decided that, no, we don't really want to work in this uh, space at all? I, I don't think we've had anyone that's kind of completely steered clear. I think there's been a, a very useful, uh, quite quick learning that because of the necessity around um, moving at a sensible pace rather than trying to move as quickly as possible, it's not the quickest industry to try and kind of get into. So I think there's been a reevaluation of priorities rather than coming in and being like, absolutely not, not worth our time. We'll stick with what we know. And it, again, it's that's that's one of the benefits of the program. You've you've effectively done what in twelve weeks what would normally take two or three years of of kind of learning about an industry if it's not one that you know. But all nine companies are in the process of developing proof of concepts with either one or two of the, the sponsors. And even if they 
it's it's a proof of concept and then it doesn't progress at least you've got that kind of demonstration that you've done something in the industry if you're coming into it new we'll see we're we're still quite early on in these in these right. relationships so tbc right and uh, just recently, uh, we had this uh, podcast recording with uh, uh, different people from uh, accelerators from uh, across Europe and also in the US. So it seems like the acceleration landscape is not going to be the same and the programs uh, have to adapt and everybody is going online and so on. Uh, what, is it, uh, what is it like for you for the second cohort? Um, so we, we've actually delayed starting applications for program two while we see kind of what happens um, from a UK, but also a global point of view. And obviously being in aerospace, the industry has been specifically kind of hard hit because planes aren't flying and therefore it's, it's not been great economically, but we're anticipating, um, opening applications later this year and running, um, a program. So the program two was supposed to start in September. It obviously can't in the current structure start in September at the moment. Um, so we're, we're looking at what we can do to kind of offset the new normal um as i said whether that's kind of going back to virtual or a blended virtual in-person program but at the moment we're working with all of the stakeholders on the program side so ati boeing gkn aerospace to see what works from a program point of view but also what, what works with their priorities at the moment and while that's going on we've extended support with the current cohort so cohort one was uh, scheduled to end at the end of March when we had the demo day. That's not happened for for obvious reasons. So we're we're extending our support with them um, over the next couple of months as we try and kind of get through the short term, not necessarily issues, but the short term response to the new normal. And we're going to be doing a couple of ecosystem events, so bringing people outside of the program teams together, and then hopefully things will settle down into autumn and we can kind of start back up for for program two. Right. So I really wanted to finish on some of a more, I don't know, uplifting note. Uh, <laughs> that's why I wanted to ask about your own uh, personal background, because I was looking through your LinkedIn page and I see that you uh, do work as the Venture and Ecosystem Director for this accelerator. You also uh, are an investor, a, a venture scout, a DJ. You founded a cultural publication in the UK. How does it all work together in you? <laughs> <laughs> how does it all fit yeah so um i did a biomedical science degree at university here in london graduated that in 2010 um for the following kind of three years started working in advertising and marketing agencies i then started my own startup and went through an accelerator program in 2014 uh, which is how i came across ignite initially i then ran that startup for three and a bit years while i was kind of djing and running the record label and the publication that i started and then as the startup was acquired in the spring of 2017 i joined ignite program director and i'd started investing in um, startups around that sort of time as well so I've, i think i've done about 15 angel investments myself um, both directly into startups and then into a couple of accelerator cohorts and then i've been running accelerator programs for the last three and a bit years and I still run the record label and the, the blog today. I, I'm still DJing. It's it's startups during the day and then it's music uh, during the night. So keeps keeps me busy. Um, and then yeah, you you've got to you've got to have uh, things outside of work to keep you passionate about life. Um, but. I guess, uh, I guess I'm going to ask you to send me later some links to to your music to put on the show notes. 
Awesome. Yeah, very happy to. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much, Will. Thanks a lot. Uh, good luck with uh, all the aspects of your life. And uh, yeah, I hope to talk to you after the second cohort is finished to see whether there are more startups working with the actual aviation or space exploration. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Thanks very much for having me. Now, before we wrap things up for today, let me take a minute for another shout out to our sponsor, Lark. If you are managing a remote team, as many of us do these days, really, you want to try Lark. It's got everything you need. It's got chat, video conferencing, docs, calendar. You can sign up for free and receive 200 gigabytes of cloud storage, calls for up to 100 participants and chat groups of up to 5,000 people. Get started for free at larksuite.com slash techEU. Again, that's L-A-R-K-S-U-I-T-E.com slash T-E-C-H-E-U. Thank you, Lark, for supporting TechEU podcast. And this is it for our today's episode. Thank you for listening. I do hope you enjoyed this show. Please help us spread the word. Tell a friend or colleague about the podcast and follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore EU. Audio engineering for this podcast is done by SoundPulse. That is sound-pulse.com. Please feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions, and opinions at podcast at techEU. Wherever you are, we hope you can stay safe and take care of yourself and people around you. I'm going to talk to you on Thursday in a very special episode made in collaboration with our old friends from another European-born tech website. Until then, enjoy your week. Bye-bye.